2: Everybody, welcome to Movie Crush, Mini Crush, A Dish. I'm in the captain's seat. Noel is behind me as my, uh, my steward. No? Steward. Huh. My first
1: mate? Okay, I'll take it. Steward's <laughs> cool. That's like a Game of Thrones thing. That's, uh, is it? Yeah, they're the ones who attend to the generals, so. Hand of the king? Okay, I'll tell That sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> Ooh, that makes me the king, though. I don't want to be the king. You can be whatever you want, Chuck. It's, uh, it's Hollywood.
2: I'd rather be the queen. Have you seen the Queen uh, trailer? The Queen,
1: the the, the Freddie Mercury movie? He, no, no. But he, that guy's got an uncanny resemblance. You haven't seen the teaser yet? No. Are you avoiding it or did you no. just not see it? No, I just haven't seen it. All right, it was
2: dropped yesterday. And I got to tell you, man, I am a, a huge Queen fan. Yeah. A Freddie Mercury, like he, t- for my money, is one of the top, maybe three, all-time greatest performers. Sure. Showman. Yeah. And, um... Love, love, love that band. And uh, the trailer got me excited, but I, I just think it's going to suck.
1: You think it's going to suck? I think it's going to
2: look great and sound great. But, uh, you know, famously, Sasha Baron Cohen left the film because they weren't going to tell the real story. Yeah,
1: I heard they were going to leave it. We're going to whitewash it. We're going to whitewash it. And, gonna
2: gonna whitewash it details, and so. uh, I, I don't want to see that version. I want to see the real deal. And I think the movie even. I think a lot of the movie doesn't have Freddie Mercury, and it's how the band carried on after his passing.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. It makes sense, too. I mean, like I said, Rami Malek, uncanny resemblance, and I'm sure yeah. he does a fine job, but he does strike me as like he's more of a, a TV guy. They could probably uh, push him around a little more, and he he was just stoked to, to play such an iconic role, and, and he wasn't yeah. he wasn't he wasn't I mean, gonna... he looks,
2: this trailer, he looks great in it, and I know it'll look great and sound great, but ultimately I think it'll be another kind of, Lame movie biopic.
1: You know what I don't care about? What? Biopics. Yeah? At all. Ever. Never want to see them. Really? Don't really care about them. No. Huh. Yeah. What's a good one? Give me a good one. Oh, well.
2: I mean, I certainly loved Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie. That one was fine. Um, Yeah. I preferred walk hard, the Dewey Cox story. (laughs) All right. Let's get going. Let's get going this week with uh, Trope Time. My favorite segment. Is it? It's, I like them all, but this is a good one. I don't know if I've been overdoing trope time, but who cares, right? So we're going to pick up on my internet list, and then once this list is out, people, I'm going to start calling on you. But uh, we're going to start with uh, the un-
1: the interrupted kiss. Such a trope. The music swells. Yep. They looking into each other's eyes. Almost there. And then, hey, guys. <laughs> then it's save the clock tower. Or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That that was last night. That's the, a very. I, famous, I'm sorry, I, I watched Back to the Future last night. <laughs> um, you're like
2: that happened to me last night. Yeah. I got a kiss interrupted. Yeah, yeah. That's a very famous one. Obviously, when she shakes that can in their uh-huh. face. But uh, yeah, very very heavy
1: heavily used trope. The one in um, uh, Infinity War is is awesome. With uh, Star Lord and oh, um, sure. and uh, Gamora, yes. and then uh, oh and God. then uh, Drax Drax has got a, eats a chip, <laughs> and then it cuts over to him. Oh man, it's good, very good moment. Uh, all right, next one is the uh,
2: the keys are in the visor. Have you ever known anyone that kept their car keys in the visor?
1: Maybe like in the seventies. I don't know. Is, really, was that a thing? I don't know, man. I'm asking you. You you were around the seventies. Well, right? <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know why not.
2: I mean, just leave them in the ignition if you're going to leave them in the visor. It just seems like a very irresponsible thing to do. Yeah, but it's it's become such a movie thing yeah. that um, people, when they get in the car, sometimes they're not in the visor, but you know they're frantically get in the car
1: and they look at the yeah. in
2: the visor first.
1: My my thing is why why not put them in your pocket? Why well, why sure. leave them in the car? In the ever ever w- when is that ever like the better solution to leave them in the car? Yeah, or hide them in the car. Yeah, that is certainly not a
2: hiding place. Put them in were... one of those rocks, those fake rocks. <laughs> I don't know. Well, the funny thing is, is we're also conditioned uh, by films. If I were in a danger situation and I jumped in some rando car, I would probably
1: look in the visor. Probably so. Just out of sheer, you know, movie Im- embedding movies into my brain. At the same time, though, like a jerk, I- I'll hide my key under the doormat. Occasionally, well, that's a trope. Only if it's for somebody specifically, I wouldn't. That wouldn't be like the regular place. But if I'm and someone needs my key, I'm just going to shove it under the doormat.
2: Really? Yeah. Not even the planter pot.
1: No. All right. Mm. I deserve to get robbed. Key under the mat. That's another good one. Mm-hmm. Surely no one really hides their key under the mat. No, anymore, I, right. I, I do. I, I'm, I'm being, <laughs> I'm telling the truth, Chuck. That was, that's a thing that I do. But I mean, nobody would do that, right, Noel? Just a. <laughs> Just a jerk like me.
2: Uh all right. Here's a trope that's been troped up so many times. Now it has been made fun of. That's when you know you've truly troped the trope. Uh the the baby carriage in the street.
1: My baby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> with with the car chase <laughs> happening.
1: Like that's the opening scene of Ghostbusters 2. Oh, yeah, sure. Big time. Uh, I, th- I think it was already a trope at that point. Oh. And yeah. they're almost making fun of it in Ghostbusters 2.
2: Yeah, and I don't know. I should have uh should have done some research and found the – if there are first times for these tropes, like the origin, the OG, the OT. Uh, but of clearly in French Connection, one of the great car chases of all time, uh, there is a baby carriage in that one. And I have a, even a joke in here on the blog post. The Pew Research Center found that 84 percent of women walking babies in a stroller had a 67 percent chance of narrowly missing being squashed by a car chase. It's a real pole.
1: man. I, I don't like those odds. My baby, My
2: and then <laughs> of course, in some movies, it's been either made fun of or uh, was it Speed where they hit the baby carriage and it turned out
1: it was like recycling. It's full of cans. It was like a okay. uh, yeah. It was like a, a homeless lady's. Uh, and she got She was mad because she'd course. been collecting those cans all day. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone
2: was like, oh, thank God it wasn't a baby. But no one was like, oh, I feel bad. We just ruin that lady's day. Yeah, seriously.
1: Yeah, I know that, that 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 was actually a pretty clever uh, use of that trope in a Yeah, cuz the tension's there and then you never expect it to hit and then it hits. <laughs> yeah. And then there's <laughs> this, yeah.
0: Wow.
1: The busted couldn't slow down. I'm trying to find it on the online. I I'm typing in runaway baby carriage. Um I'm not I'm coming up uh, short, but oh, really? I'm sure well, maybe we'll report back on that. That's it. Well, that, I think that would be a fun thing to to add to these.
2: The original trope. Yeah. I agree. Um All right, how about this? Telephones, Emily commented last night while we were watching something, uh, diehard actually. No one ever says hello and goodbye on the telephone in films. It's become such a thing. It's just a film thing. That's the way people act in movies. Uh, You just don't do it, especially goodbye. Well, actually both, kind of equally. And it's just, I think it's become such a thing that it would seem really odd If in a film someone picked up the phone and said, hello, well, hey, how are you doing? And then had their conversation and said, okay, well, I'll talk to you later then. Goodbye now. Goodbye. You just don't do it. I mean, part of it is the economy of words for films, I think. sure. So maybe that's why. Like you don't need to say hello and goodbye in a movie to get that you're on the phone. And they always kind of tell you as a screenwriter to get rid of all that
1: superfluous shit. But uh, yeah. It's a little rude. Yeah, you, you ever notice, too, there's very rarely a dial tone when people pick up the phone in movies? Or, like, the way phones work, it's sort of just a movie way. Right. Sort of like early depictions of being on the internet. Yeah. <laughs>
2: like... Yeah, or, you know, another trope, actually, with that dial tone is the, the hang up on someone. Like, you, you didn't get a dial tone.
1: That's, I'm sorry. You know what? That's exactly what I'm thinking, Chuck. Right. Exactly. You slam in... the phone, it would go. Ding. Yep. That is, that is not how that is. That didn't, you know, no. it didn't work that mm-hmm. way. I
2: know all you kids out there, you have no idea what a dial tone even is. <laughs> but in the old days,
1: when you pick up a phone, uh, you would hear a dial tone before you started dialing. They just needed an extra layer of this person definitely hung up. Yeah. Even though it makes absolutely – I just looked it up on – on. there's a video in old movies why the dial tone after someone hangs up. It's definitely – it's on there's – a, there's a site actually called uh, movietropes.com that, that uh, oh, well, catalogs like that. a lot of yeah. this stuff. Might yeah, that's for to, sure. Might be fun to use. Well,
2: and while I'm on that, I just got a pair of binoculars and uh, <laughs> Emily could not – she she can't work binoculars right. She can never get it right. And I'm telling her, I'm like, you, can, you don't put them right up against your eyeball. You got to hold them out a little bit. And we figured out the problem is that she is looking for the classic movie binocular look, which is two round, uh, you know, two round things joined yep. together. Yeah. And that is not how binoculars work. It becomes one one It thing. becomes one thing. Right. Yeah. And she went, really? And she went, like, I've never had a binocular experience that yeah. worked because of that. I said, because of movies probably. Yeah. She's trying to make it look like that thing. In movies, to signify you're looking through binoculars. Exactly. That's funny. We just discovered a trope, Noel. um, How about a couple more here? We've got uh, Never Turn Your Back on the Dead Guy or the Bad Guy. I mean, that one's – that's a super trope. Uh, I feel like it's been done so many times in horror movies and action films. They're never dead. They're never dead. They're never dead.
1: Oh, yeah, even, like, after that's happened a couple times already, they're, they're still never they're dead. They're probably never dead.
2: Yeah. Like, Die Hard. I watched it last night. As I just said, um, you know, Carl is hung from the neck by a chain. And in real time, probably 10 minutes later, yeah, he's alive. He's just imbued with the power of evil. <laughs> Keeps him going. Uh, and finally, the, uh, the kung fu fight. Not always kung fu, but whenever it's one on 10... They always kind of fight one guy at a time. Mm. Every time I see a movie fight where it's like eight or nine guys against the one guy, and they do like one at a time, and he turns and fights the other guy, I'm always like, everybody run at him.
1: Well, they just want to give their buddies a (laughs) chance to shine, Chuck. (laughs) Show off their sweet moves. And
2: the other guys are just kind of standing there like, all right, when's it my turn? When's it my turn? No, just everyone run at him and jump on him and beat 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 the shit out of him. Yeah, that would be
1: more efficient. It's true. All right, that's it for Trope Time. It's funny, though, a lot of these things, Chuck, though, you say this stuff and you look at the movie and you say, why didn't they do this? I'm like, because if they didn't do this, there'd be no scene. (laughs) Everything would have ended in five minutes.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne.
4: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm
1: Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it.
4: I never seen a man take care of my mother the
1: way she needed to be taken care of. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: All right, I'm going to skip this segment because we are running short on time today, and I will go straight to stream this. Captain Fantastic. Did you see it? Loved it. I think we talked about it a little bit, and Emily and I might actually do a to Judgment on this one soon. Cool. So I'm not going to get too into it here, but uh I feel like I, I picked this one because I feel like it was underseen. I agree. In 2016, uh, written and directed by the actor Matt Ross, who uh, many of you probably know
1: as the leader of Huli in uh, ah, yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah, he's also the creepy brother in uh, uh, Big Love. Yeah? Yep.
2: Yep. yep, and uh, one of the in American Psycho years ago, he was in that. Um, so it turns out Matt Ross is super talented as a writer and director. Cause he wrote this movie starring Viggo Mortensen as a father uh, raising his children, his, his pack of kids, uh, in the woods and in the wild and teaching them, uh, homeschooling them and teaching them to hunt and fish and live off the land and grow organic foods and farm and they're incredibly intelligent, and be communists, uh yeah, maybe <laughs> anarchists, communists, yeah, uh, but it's just a wonderful movie, so much heart, so real. uh, I think Vigo got nominated for best actor, actually, so it did get a little bit of kudos, but um criminally underseen to me, and a very very touching, heartwarming and sad and and also uplifting film for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I, I knew very little about it. Yeah. I went in cold, and I, it just it got me. Yeah. And it also, like, it, it, it you think it's going to do a thing that's a little bit uh, schmaltzy and cliche, and it doesn't do it. it. It it really does a good job of kind of subverting your expectations. Yeah, And um, you come out on the other side. It, it, it sort of puts you through the ringer, but you still come out with this kind of cathartic experience. But Agreed. it doesn't do it in, like, a sappy, saccharine kind of way.
2: Yeah, totally agree. So check it out, everyone. Like I said, uh, Emily and I might do a crush to Judgment on that because we uh, recently watched it and loved it so, so much. Uh, And then finally, we're going to finish up with Comet Cardinal. Five questions from you folks to us. Ben Masters, one of my favorite questions in a while, very succinct. Streets of Fire or Eddie and the Cruisers? Do you even know what I'm talking about? No, sir. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Ben is clearly a man of my age. Uh, These were two movies in the 1980s that came out kind of near each other that really aren't very similar Other than the fact that they feel similar somehow, but they really aren't. But somehow they're linked in my mind. I am just going to straight up answer this Eddie and the Cruisers. Uh, And Ben, I was uh, such a fan of that film that I bought the record soundtrack and I actually saw uh, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band in concert (laughs) when I was a kid. And they provided the music. They played the they did the music as the real band. Of the fictional Eddie and the Cruisers in the film. Nice. And they had a big hit. One of their one of those songs on the dark side was a legit, I think probably top ten hit. Cool. I didn't look that up, but uh yeah, good stuff. The Beaver what band? John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. Nice. <laughs> really not a good name. Yeah. Uh, but that's what they're most well known for. Check out Eddie and the Cruisers. I think you would dig that. Who's movie. in it? It's uh Michael Perret Plays uh Eddie, and he was in a band in the I guess '60s or '50s, called Eddie and the Cruisers, who and he disappeared, uh-huh. he vanished, and the movie jumps back in time uh, from the from the modern day. One of the guys in the band telling the story and trying to find Eddie, and then uh, telling the story of of being in this band that really got super popular, and then what happened to Eddie.
1: Okay, and, and what what Streets of Fire and why are they related?
2: Well, Streets of Fire was around the same era, but if I'm not mistaken it was sort of a post-apocalyptic thing um and i think they're related because michael parade is in both of them quite honestly and they both came out kind of around the same time but other than that they really
1: have nothing to do with one another the poster for streets of fire looks very much like the warriors or something yeah but it's like a post-apocalyptic warriors or like a mad max ish kind of thing
2: Yeah, directed by the great Walter Hill. Ah, okay. Certainly uh, worth checking out as well. But yeah, that's probably why they're linked. Michael Perret, for sure. Got it. He was great, man. Uh, Megan Broyles, what's your favorite Robert Altman film? Uh, I'm not going to name one, Megan, because it's just too hard for me. So I'm going to say The Player, uh, Shortcuts, Nashville, and believe it or not, I'm going to throw in Popeye. That's like a musical, right? It is, and it is. Doesn't Harry
1: Nilsson do the music for that?
2: Uh, maybe I think he does it was widely panned but um I was a huge fan of that movie as a kid and it still holds a place in my heart and as far as creating a world of like a comic book cartoony world and making it real life and the casting um d- didn't get any better the world he created and Robin Williams as Popeye and Shelley Duvall as olive oil I mean it was all on point to me um plot wise maybe that's where it falls apart but I loved that movie when I was a kid.
1: Robin Williams has those ridiculous swollen biceps, too. They, just like the... Yeah, well, that was, a, you know, a prosthetic. Yeah, yeah, No, course. I'm just saying, it's just like, it's it's comical how oh, yeah. how, how much they, they tried to, to do that.
2: Dude, I loved that movie so much when I was a kid that I, I tried to figure out a way to do that for Halloween, and I could not figure it out.
1: Yeah. I don't know, how, how what would be a,
2: a DIY way to do that? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure these days, like, maybe some sort of...
1: They probably have applications now that would yeah. make it easier. Yeah. It's funny. Um yeah, Harry Nilsson did do the soundtrack and Pitchfork gave the reissue of it an eight point oh. Whoa. So totes <laughs> uh coming back into favor with the with the hipster uh, All right. record review scene. Um you know what I watched? I watched uh, the Flintstones movie with my kid. I never saw that. It's not good. dude. Yeah. Although it, it the, does the first one. Or? Yeah, the first uh-huh. one. It does look cool though, like the the dinosaurs and all the the dinosaurs mowing the lawn right. and, the, and all the stuff from the cartoon. It looks great, but it like has this plot involving like embezzlement and like corporate fraud. That's sort of the problems with some of those
2: movies is like we can create it and it'll look cool, but like, oh, the story. Yeah, but it's just like,
1: is this for kids? Who is this for? But it did did well. Um, It's about embezzlement. It's about embezzlement. It's Um, a very kid-friendly topic. It's very strange.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast.
4: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes...
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Nicole Park says, which movie defines your childhood? Um, as much as uh, E.T. was up there, I probably would say Empire Strikes Back or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Those were two biggies for me
1: when I was just at that right age. Maybe War Games, too. I was really deep into those... um Don Bluth animated films like um, The Secret of Nim and Land uh, Before Time and uh, American Tale and I all didn't that. See Any of those. Yeah, they're the really bummer ones. Uh-huh. They're all like <laughs> sadder than Disney and way more intense. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there's what All Dogs Go to Heaven, where like yeah, they literally even... go to hell and there's right. a demon dog thing. And yeah, those movies kind of messed me up when I was a kid, but I have a very distinct memory of seeing a lot of those in the theater. And um, that's a very kind of time and place right. childhood movie memory for me is all those movies. You know?
2: I think our ages are complement each other well for the show because we're just far enough apart where we had some different shit as uh, as our our kid stuff. Sure. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. all the all the stuff was I was like in high school, so I was not going to see American Tale.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I also remember seeing E.T. on VHS. Well, yeah, sure. You know, and uh, all, all those, um, you know, the, the Indiana Jones movies. I do remember renting the Indiana Jones movies and being like, they're, they were PG or something. And it's like yeah. the, the, the guy in Temple of Doom, dude, gets his heart ripped out. And right. I was like, how is this <laughs> well, PG? Well, I, I
2: believe Temple of Doom was the movie that uh, spurred, one of two movies that spurred the PG-13 rating. That's right. If I'm not mistaken.
1: Because Back to the Future, which I watched the other night... Um, a lot of swearing, and it's, it's, yeah. it's PG. A lot of, like, pretty adult talk. Yeah, yeah, you know,
2: totally. Uh, Kevin uh, Herbon, or Herbon, says, A blind person just had their sight restored. What movie do you suggest they see first? What a great question. Um, obviously, Kevin, you would think you would lean towards something uh, like a feast for the eyes, and I did. And so I'm going to give two answers. Uh, one animated and one just straight-up film. I'm going to say Coco, uh, even though it's f- super recent because, uh, and I've said it before, maybe the most visually um, fantastic film I've
1: ever seen in my life. Unbelievable. Yeah. No, it's, it's insane. Like all of the backgrounds and the stuff when they're in the, uh, the underworld or the yeah. afterlife, it's some very, very beautiful filmmaking for sure. Uh, and then I'm going to go with Days of Heaven. Uh, because
2: it is one of my favorite movies of all time. It is, uh, so it's a great film. And there's just visually, it's just so beautiful. Um, most of the movie, as if you listen to the uh, episode with Brooke Adams, was shot at Magic Hour. And it's just gorgeous. So, uh, really great question, Kevin. That's what I would suggest. William Angus, finally, question number five What is an older film whose visual effects hold up amazingly well? He said, for me, it's got to be the first Jurassic Park. I agree. I think that holds up. Big time. And that was one of the ones I remember, you know, that first really great use of CGI mm-hmm. to where it was
1: goose bumpy, you know, in the theater. It even looks good on TV. Like, yeah. I, I've seen it on TV with my kid recently, and it really, you can usually kind of see the edges and uh, right. see the kind of flaws. And, and it looks it looks as good as anything they, they're doing today, yeah, I think, sure.
2: in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go, though, with some older movies. Um, I'm going to go with Alien and Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner. Yeah, I was going to say Blade Runner. Those movies hold up remarkably well visually. They do not look uh, dated. I think one of the reasons why is because they didn't, uh, they went with obviously a lot of practical effects Mm -hmm. and models. It's lighting. It's all like,
1: you know, good use of lighting and stuff.
2: Yeah, and they didn't try and, like, hey, let me look futuristic because when you try and do the future you end up looking dated because no one ever gets it right mm-hmm. they went with like this sort of retro dumpy garbagey look yep for both and that just makes it hold up I think
1: did I tell you about when I, I got to go to Industrial Light and Magic in San Francisco and just walk around take a tour with uh, Holly Fry a little bit give it some deets well they had all of the original matte paintings mm. from a lot of those films yeah. like um, E.T. for example they had the matte painting of the L.A. cityscape with oh, all the wow. lights and for uh-huh. anyone that doesn't know matte paintings is what they used to do instead of superimposing things digitally they literally would have these highly skilled artists paint yeah a backdrop that looked like you know a, a scene, and then they would film it and light it in a way that it like yeah, pre blue screen, pre blue screen. They would bo- actually paint that but shit. they would composite it with other stuff mm-hmm. using um, it's called a optical printer, yeah. which was invented by Ub Iwerks, who worked with Walt Disney, mm-hmm. and it's this giant machine. They had one of those, the original ones they used for all these movies like Temple of Doom and ET at um, ILM. But the sh- the um, the map paintings were actually done on shower doors, oh. like glass shower doors. Wow, so good um, light. And- so you could through light it, it through yeah. it from it and there would be like holes kind of not punched, but there would be little spots where there would be city lights and they would light it from behind. <laughs> so it would like twinkle and they would have the lights move. But you look at it, you, you look at it up close and you see the brush strokes, and there was even a tiny movie theater for the E.T. one uh-huh. where it says Star Wars like on the marquee. Oh, but nice. you can see the the, the brush brushstrokes. Yeah, and but then when you step back, it just looks like what it is. So cool. It's such just, you know, delicate artisanal kind of work and yeah. you don't have that anymore but that stuff holds up the best I think because it's yeah they knew what they were doing
2: yeah I will say this it's easy I think to fall into that thing where you like oh man they were just such artists back then but I think it's just a different version of that oh. today no 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 doubt you know but um it is very cool to see those old school like in-camera effects and tricks and mm-hmm. models and matte paintings very good stuff all right that's it Noel That was fun. You feel good about this one? I feel very good about it, Chuck. Your homework this week, everybody, is uh, Tokyo Story. We have had a run on musicians lately, and I was very pleased with this one because I had Mr. Loudon Wainwright III, uh, actually not in the studio, I went uh, next door to the city winery in his green room on location. And uh, Loudon's the the father of my friend Lucy Wainwright, who played Jerry on the Stuff You Should Know TV show. And that's how uh, I got hooked up with this one. And Loudon is also an actor. Um, he's, he was on the TV show MASH. He was in Knocked Up and quite a few of the Judd Apatow projects. And so he's kind of run the gamut. He's a, he's a Grammy award winner. So, uh, now I've had a Grammy winner, a Tony winner and Emmy winner. And, uh, we had a really good conversation about Tokyo story. It is a tough movie. Everyone just, uh, throwing it out there. It is in black and white. It is from, uh, the early 1950s and it is Japanese and all of these things combine to make it a tougher film maybe for today's audiences to get through but a very rewarding film if you manage to sit with it and uh and take it all in and it is very slow and languid and um and and it has great rewards that's what i will say and is known as one of the the great films of all time uh and we had a great conversation about that and about his life and music and his career and uh about what it's like to be in san francisco in the summer of 1968 my lord what a time so tokyo story cr- brush up to crush out loud and wainwright the third coming friday and uh until next week we'll uh, be here in the studio camping out together
1: i can't wait man i brought my uh my thermos and my uh sleeping bag great well i've got some biana sausages and a huge bag of wheat.
2: sounds like a good time <laughs> all right bye everybody